You're listening to the Elvis Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast, the channel that is devoted 100% to the life and career of the biggest selling recording artist of all time, with your host, Steve Francis. Hello and welcome to Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to remind you to join me live every Wednesday and Sunday for my YouTube live stream shows when we have Elvis fan chats, an Elvis fan of the month quiz with monthly prizes up for grabs, and I pick my Elvis song of the week. My special guest today is Marilyn Demeter. Marilyn first met Elvis after one of his concerts in Texas in 1955. After that first meeting, they became friends and she has many memories and stories to share about her friendship with Elvis. Marilyn was also instrumental in presenting Elvis with the script of his final movie, Change of Habit, when she worked for MCA Universal. She joins me on the show now to tell us more. Hello, Marilyn. You are very, very welcome to Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel. Well, thank you for having me, Steve. I am so happy to be with you and be able to uh, talk about Elvis and all the wonderful things that he's done. Well, we, we've been friends on social media for quite a while, but this is the first time we've actually spoken, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is the first time. <clears throat> so so what can you tell me about Elvis Presley uh, and uh, your your life with him? I met Elvis when I was 13, and strangely, I call it serendipity because it was it was just something out of the blue that I never thought would happen. Uh, he wasn't, I was from New York City, and and in 1955, we'd never heard of Elvis Presley. He was, he was just nothing to us. That particular summer of 1955, I was traveling with my father, who was, he was in show business. He, he did summer stock uh, shows, and that summer we were touring the South, and we'd been in a few cities, and we wound up in a, a small city in Texas. From there, we stayed with friends, my father's friends, who uh, uh, it was an American fella married to an American Indian, and they had two girls. And those two girls were a bit older than I was. As I said, I was 13. And we were having dinner, and they were about to leave to go to a high school dance. So the mother had said, would you take Marilyn with you? And uh, they kind of looked at each other like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, they were might might have been 16 or 17. I was 13. Uh -huh. So you can feel, yeah, I can understand. So I thought I was going to a dance, and we wound up at a place called Davy Crockett High School in Texas. And uh, there was a stage set up. There was, uh, and what happened is that they left me there. They took off with two boyfriends and just took off and left me. And the show, and I could see people coming and there was a show that was going to go on. Now, I'm thinking that I'm at a high school dance. Mm -hmm. So what happened is the show was, uh, there were a few acts and it was Elvis, Scotty Moore, and Bill Black. And I, because I was a little frightened and I was by myself, I stood near the stage. And I was looking up at him, and uh, he was just, to me, he was like a high school boy that was, um, oh, how could I say it? You know, the high school boy, maybe the head of the football team, or mm -hmm. he was 
he was adorable, but he had a lot of, you could just tell, he had a lot of charisma. And I did not know the music that he was singing. I had never really heard it. It wasn't country. It wasn't anything I knew of. But uh, after he finished his part of the show, he came down the stairs and he said to me, he looked at me and he said, um, he says, why are you here all alone? He actually, during his act, he knew that I was there alone. So all of these things must go through his mind. So we just had a conversation. And um, in, during that conversation, he asked me what my accent was. And I told him I was from New York. And he, had, he said to me, I'm going to be in New York someday. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, wonderful. He says, would you show me around? I said, I'd love to. You know, it's like, uh, uh, let's say the head of the football team talking to one of the young girls. So I was all at Twitter about it. But in the meantime, people were coming over asking him for his autograph. It wasn't as um, crazy as it got later on. Yeah. They, they were respectful of him. They weren't as crazy, but they wanted his autograph. They knew who he was, all those uh, people from Texas. They knew. And I wasn't. Um, so he asked me for my phone number in New York, and I gave it to him. And then he walked away. He said, I'll, he says, I will call you when I get to New York. And I thought to myself, he never wrote down my number, so I'm never going to get a call from him. So later on, you find out that he had this phenomenal memory. Yeah. Um, he, I did get a call from him at my home, and he was in New York, and he asked me to come to the hotel. Uh, Parker was there. A, a lot of people were in the room, uh, all uh, big executives and different people. His cousin was there. Um, and I was introduced to no one, so I felt uncomfortable. Best connection with Elvis was Tom Diskin and I became very close friends. Okay. Do you remember which uh, hotel it was? Was it the Warwick? No, it wasn't the Warwick. It was a hotel that's been torn down now. And in my memory, I cannot remember the name of it. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, it's hard. It's, those are the things that memory goes. I do not remember the name of it. I try to think of it, and I can't. It mm. was not the Warwick, though. That was later on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so what happened after that initial meeting in, in New York? Uh, after that, at the meeting, uh, I was asked to be, Tom Diskin asked me, would I like to be a uh, fan club president? And I immediately said yes, because that's my way. Yeah. not knowing anything about what a fan club president did mm. or what I was expected <laughs> of me. I just said, sure, of course I will. <laughs> so, uh, and that was before the, the Dorsey shows. It was before Ed Sullivan. So um, I started up uh, putting up signs in, in my high school. I went to a very big high school. There were 3,000 people in my own graduating class. Uh -huh. So um, I put up signs to, and at first nobody, but as soon as he started to appear on the Dorsey shows and then the first Ed Sullivan show, I had 2,000 people signed up to be in his fan club. So that was, my whole teenage life was spent that way, um, making up uh, membership cards. I used all of my money that I would make uh, to to have, get the things to the to the fans that they wanted
And, and then he started making movies, obviously from 1956 onwards, Love Me Tender. Um, what, what, how, did, how did it progress for you after that? You were still obviously running the, the, the fan club. I believe it was, now that I think back, and I didn't think of it then, but now I think that as a reward for doing the work that I did, and I, it was a lot of work, um, in 1957, they asked me when he, after he first bought Graceland, they asked me to come down and see Graceland. And Elvis was there. It was right before Christmas, and um, that was that was lovely. That he took me on a tour of, of the mansion, and uh, and once again, in all honesty, it was it's a bit awkward because you. I wasn't. I met his mom, and his mom was the sweetest lady to me, mm -hmm. and very nice. And so was he, but he was so busy. He had. Uh, you've seen pictures. All of us have seen the pictures of him with the two beauty beauty girls. That. Yes. Um, yeah. You know what the ones I mean. Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the day that I was there. Uh huh. And I was all dressed and excited to be in Memphis and the whole thing and. I had a, they gave me a room at the Peabody Hotel. I was all dressed and thinking, oh, he's going to like me now and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and then he comes down the stairs. He comes down the stairs with these two beauty queens, and the, the photographers were snapping the pictures of them. And I mean, well, my ego went down to like the size of a mouse. <laughs> like, oh, he, it just blew you out of the water. <laughs> how am I ever going to impress this guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but then he was so sweet when his mom told him that I had been waiting there and I had been waiting for, I, it seemed like hours, but it was probably about 40 minutes for him mm -hmm. to come downstairs. And when I, we went into the music room, he, I played the piano for him. He, I had just run my fingers across the keys and he said, do you play? And I said, I do. And uh, he asked me to play something. And uh, after it was finished, he said... That was beautiful. He says, now let's go. And so we went around the house, and then we went out to the barn, and he showed me the animals in the barn. And then I uh, came back, and uh, it was my time to leave. I felt, like I said, I felt that was it. And I went back to the hotel and then went back home. So that was 1957. Yeah. When he left uh, for Germany, I was in the crowd with the fan club when he left on the train uh, when he came in on the train and then left on the Randall from Brooklyn Navy Yard. I was there then. And then also when he came back uh, in a snowstorm, and that's my most beautiful memory of him. We were there. We, we drove from New York in a tremendous snowstorm. And uh, we, we were asked by, uh, I was asked by Tom Diskin to please be there and bring as many people as I could. But because of the snowstorm, it was only me and another fella that got there. Uh-huh. And um, I saw him come off the plane. It was like radar, <laughs> and I screamed his name. And he put—he just looked, and the look on his face—that's the one memory that I have of him that I will never forget. That happiness on his face was that somebody or people were there that still remembered him. He was back. Yeah. You know? He uh, um, he he looked he looked sensational after his two years in the army. I don't think he ever looked better than March April of nineteen sixty. Yeah, I agree. I think mm. he was 
like I said, when I first met him, he was like a kid. He was very young looking. So, uh, yeah, so we're, we're up to the 1960s. Uh, what, ha what, what happened then when he started back and he started making records and making movies and so forth? Like in... In 1961, once again, I was, as that's the year I graduated from high school, he asked, uh, I was asked by Tom Diskin, did I, would I like to go to Hawaii? And of course, I said, yes, I would love to go to Hawaii. That started, that was the first time I got to see him making a film. And um, we didn't see much of each other. I just would see him from a distance when he was making the film. And I became friendly with uh, um, Mickey Moore, who was uh, one of the, like a second director. Or, mm. But I became friends with the people who, who did the, uh, you know, who the, the gophers and the other people that were around doing the things. And then um, we stayed in a hotel on the island of Kauai mm -hmm. called the Hanalei Plantation. I had, they gave me a room, the whole thing, and I became friends with some of the girls. Unfortunately, they're all gone now. Uh, that was where we kind of, I kind of had a chance to really sit down and talk to him at the pool there. And uh, he had asked me to, uh, he was on a lounge chair and I was walking by and he, he waved to me to come over and put his hand down to sit down on that lounge chair with him. Mm -hmm. And we had a little bit of a chat there and that was it. And then... Uh, I left, he was busy, and so my life is like that with him, it, it never was really close, although in, in retrospect I would have liked it to have been, but there was nothing going on. Unfortunately, you say, I can, I can, hear, <laughs> I, I can, I can actually hear the regret in your voice. <laughs> yeah, um, I, 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 the first time I saw him with those um, beauty queens, it was like, well, there's just nothing going on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, there's a, there's a very famous saying, isn't there, that uh, all men wanted to be Elvis and all women wanted to be with Elvis. So you know, there's there's probably yeah. very there's probably very few women that that wouldn't have um, wanted a romance with him. Put it that way. Yes. No, I forget who it was who said that she turned he turned her on. Uh, Goldie Hawn. Mm -hmm. I think he turned on her emotions or whatever, and that's that's true. It was what every girl would dream of. Most girls, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so after that, obviously that was Blue Hawaii. Um, did you get to go on any other movie sets? I uh, went on um, Viva Las Vegas, okay. where I saw him and Anne Margaret, and it was the same thing. I was in the background. I was um, his friends, and Joe and all those people were always hanging around, but I did not want to be with them hmm. for some reason, so I went with the crew. I watched him and Anne Margaret together a lot. And I, it's my feeling that they were very, very much in love. Mm. <clears throat> it's a shame how all of that worked out because I think that that could have been something. He was, they were both very much in love. You could just see it. And everybody on the set talked about it. You could see it on the screen as well. That yeah. Most definitely, you could see it on the screen. Mm -hmm. that, that's why the, the movie was such a, a success, was the chemistry between them. Mm-hmm. But, and I noticed that Anne Margaret's not your favorite co-star with him. No, that's right. I I did I did a a, a video there, didn't I, a couple of weeks ago? Uh, and my, my, my number one turned out to be uh, Jocelyn Lane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that surprised a lot of people. So uh, yeah, she she came a close second, but uh, yeah, Jocelyn just just I, I think I think um, 
if I was to be completely honest with you, I just found Jocelyn Lane that little bit better looking. I mean, don't get me wrong, Anne is devastatingly beautiful, but uh, Jocelyn just edged it. Uh-huh. Okay. So there you, <laughs> there you go. We, we, we know the reason why it ended between Anne and, and Elvis, and that's unfortunately he'd already sort of made commitments to Priscilla, hadn't he? Yes. I think he, he wanted to work it out another way if he could have. Mm. Uh, and I, this is only speculation. Like I said, this I don't know, but I think that maybe it would have liked to. But then the stories came out that he was engaged to her and that ruined it for him. Of course, we, we know that Priscilla actually heard the rumors about Anne and Elvis and she wasn't happy, to say the least, she wasn't happy. <laughs> no. She she no. She confronted Elvis about it, I believe. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what we heard. Uh, I'm sure she did. That My feeling is that there weren't, I don't know how she could have expected a man like that to not have, you know, I mean, in the position when you're in that kind of show business and you're around, most people, they get very close together at the time. Mm-hmm. And I guess she was just, she was young, and I have to forgive the, the youth and everything else that she didn't know about that world, I guess. Yeah, but she was still very young. She would have been uh, late teens uh, when she, yeah, 64, 65. Um, so yeah, as you say, she was she would have been quite innocent. Uh, what what uh, let, let's sort of uh, you're saying um, it happened at the World's Fair and Viva Las Vegas. That sort of takes us up to the middle sixties. Uh, what happened uh, towards the tail end of the nineteen sixties? You, you you what what were you working at? You were still doing the the fan club, but you you got a job with. Uh, somebody uh, something in the music industry not in the music industry in the movie industry right after 62 63 i met my husband mm-hmm. and we i gave up the fan club and because uh once we were married i moved to bermuda and we lived in bermuda for five years so i had nothing to do with fan club i had given it to someone else at the time to run it okay and it just dissipated it just dissipated from there and when I came back, um, I got a job with MCA Universal. All right. Which at the time, at MCA, which is Music Corporation of America, owned Universal Movie Studio. But I worked in New York, not in California. And I got a job with Eleanor Kilgallen, who was at the time the, I guess, the premier agent. Uh, and manager for many big stars like Rock Hudson and uh, just a whole bunch of slew of people. So I met all of these people. And uh, during this time, I think now that I, I think that she hired me because of my resume said about being in uh, running Elvis fan club or whatever. She wanted, she wanted to take Elvis away from Colonel Parker, and she would talk incessantly about Elvis, and that she could make him a better, she could get him better movies, and that he was a better actor. And she kept, she kept at me. We, we talked about his, the fact that he was very unhappy with what he was doing, mm. and she gave me a book to read. Uh, it was a story about a priest and a nun that fell in love. It was, a, it was a very romantic novel, and then. She had had a script. There was a script that was made up for this movie. She asked me if I could contact Elvis and let him know about it. I did. 
I called Tom Diskin first, and I asked him to have Atlas call me at, at my number at work, and he did. And I told him that there was a script that he might be interested in. He didn't want anyone to know about it. So he asked me would I fly out and give him the script. MCA made arrangements for me to fly out to California to give him the script. And uh, Lamar Fight picked me up at the airport. We drove into Beverly Hills, and we kept driving around. And I, he says, no, we keep passing the house. It's not time to go in yet. He says, why don't you just give me the script? And I refused to. Mm. So I said, just take me back to the hotel. So I went back to the hotel. From there, I called my boss, who called another boss, who called the head of um, MGM. And they, they called me back, and they said, in the morning, go, and you go to the set, and you give Elvis the, the script. So they made those arrangements for me. Why uh, Lamar Fike did not want me to do the script, I don't know. Um, um, that's all speculation. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds a bit uh, suspect, doesn't it? It does, and there are a lot of things, and people that I've met since um, these, these last few years who more or less the same thing has happened to them. Phone calls that they made that never got through that were important. Mm. Um, there's a lot about that. Now, did they work for Colonel Park, or did Colonel Park know that my boss was trying to get Elvis out of, away from him? You know, well, I don't know, but there was a lot of it. Well, there's, there's, there's a famous story, isn't there, where Elvis gave Steve Binder, the uh, director of the uh, 68 Comeback Special, his telephone number, and when Steve tried to ring it a few days later, it wouldn't connect, which is kind of odd. And also, yeah. and also, Steve tried to see Elvis after the opening engagements in 1969, and again he wasn't let in the dressing room. And Steve wonders whether Elvis even knew that uh, Steve wanted to see him. Was Elvis even told Steve was there? Uh, Steve, that's very true. That you were left. A person was left with the feeling that did Elvis know, and was he doing this? But did he not want to see you, or was someone else doing it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Steve Binder, who should have, you know, you just say, okay, for me, that I can understand they didn't want me there. But someone like Steve Binder, you know, how did how did all of this come about? Uh, they were, to me, they were so much unlike him. And I often now, in perspective, you know, when you're this the age I am and you look back, you see things so differently than when you're living through them. Yeah. And I uh, I just wonder now how how that all came about, how they how each one I I know like Jerry Schilling, like you said, I'd love to hear his story, um, some of the early ones, but there was something that just wasn't right there. You mentioned and, you you mentioned Tom Parker earlier on. I mean, what what are your mm -hmm. what are your feelings on the relationship between uh, Elvis and, and Tom Parker? Uh, I would say that it was pretty much business with them. I know from Tom Diskin that Parker was um, he would call him his boy, but he really wasn't his boy. Hmm. He was, you know, that would make you think like, oh well, Tom Parker really liked him. Uh, Tom Parker was just about the business. Mm. And was no, there was, I don't think there was any real, um, like, father-son relationship or um, 
that he was his boy at all. It was just that he made money. He saw a person, a raw young kid that he could that he could mold and create a myth for. Hmm. Elvis wanted to be a movie star, and Crocker could create that for him. And I think that that's he he never forget somebody who did something really wonderful for him. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, but uh, unfortunately, the the movie actor that he became became sort of a a singing racing car driver and frogman and and all this, didn't he? Uh, he he didn't become the dramatic actor that he wanted to be. No, not at all. I mean, like the this script that we had could have probably catapulted him, but that script was turned, I don't know what happened to it. Elvis did get it, and he wanted to do that. But that would have meant probably that he would have had to leave Parker. Mm. And um, Parker would not have probably not have let him do that kind of a movie. There was no music in it. But then it turned out that that was change of habit. They used parts of that, or the, uh, the idea of the nun, and they turned the priest into a uh, a doctor, and that was the the outcome of it. And Elvis was very he was unhappy with that at all. It was you know it was not the way he wanted to be, and that was his lesson. I think he was very depressed at the end. <clears throat> it was it was all over by then, as we know. Change of habit became yeah. Elvis's last movie. Um, mm -hmm. Well, by then he'd done the 68 comeback special. Uh, mm -hmm. He'd done the recording sessions in Memphis Sound. And they were looking towards uh, returning to the live shows. Right. Uh, I think right. I, th I think by, by sort of 1967, 68, even Tom Parker had realized that the movies had, would, had probably run their course. Yeah. But he, yeah, well, they made enough money, didn't they? Yeah. Off of it. Oh yeah, I mean, they, um, they they never they never didn't make money. Even Hal Wallace said the only sure thing in Hollywood is an Elvis Presley movie. Mm-hmm. Right. So. And uh, it, it was cheap to make. For, you know, uh, Elvis got a fairly big salary, but Cock got most of it. And then he put himself as advisor on the film, so he made Cocker did very well. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um it just it's sad that he if if he had gotten away from Parker he would have had he would have had his dream come true and I think he would have been um everything would have worked out differently for him. You you think it, you you think that uh he he wouldn't have died at the age he did is that what you mean? That's hard to say. Mm, it is hard to say, uh, yeah. It's very hard to say. He, you know that he said that he was going to die at 42. Mm. And um, whether it was from that he had illnesses that he knew or that he, he felt his mother died then from pretty similar things, um, you, it's hard to say. Yeah. Very hard to say. But he worked himself into, he worked, uh, he he worked so hard. That's one thing that fans don't seem to understand is how hard he worked at his trade.
That's all for part one. Marilyn has lots more to tell us in the second episode, so I hope you can join me next week for that. Don't forget to join me live on YouTube every Wednesday and Sunday for Elvis Fan Chat, the Elvis Fan of the Month quiz, with a monthly prize to be won for the most correct answers, and find out what song I have chosen as Elvis's Song of the Week. Until then, stay safe, and I hope you'll join me next time for another episode from Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel.